Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week, I'm going to address a question that was asked of me. First off, I want to thank Omri Trevino for asking this question. I've been thinking about it all week, and it really challenged me to come up with a thoughtful and insightful answer. I don't know that I've really gotten there, but I thought this was too good of a topic to not share my answer with everyone. Omri asked me, what do you do when your peers look at you like you're crazy? My staff doc today looked at me like I was the craziest person in the world today when I mentioned your latest podcast about COVID to another classmate. He even asked me what news I've been watching and why am I doing this to myself, and I didn't answer. I don't watch the news. I just listen to this, and from the education I've received, it's all making sense. How, if I do get into these talks with patients and other professionals, do I even speak about it when they're already stuck in their dogma? That's a really good question, with what I fear may become a long answer. So let's talk about it. Before we talk specifics, let's talk about generalities of human behavior. The first part of my answer is probably something you won't like, or at least some people won't like it. The first part of my answer is that the most effective and efficient method for changing human behavior is with the strategic use of shame. Yes, you heard me right. Shame is both valuable and productive. Now, I know that I see parents all the time who are convinced that their child or children should never experience anything that they would deem to be negative. And chief among those is the experience of shame. Now think this through to its logical conclusion. A child grows up and never experiences shame for anything they do. Over time, they become conditioned to never experience shame as their behavior grows more and more outrageous. By the time they are an adult, they basically do anything they want, whenever they want, and they never experience any shame at all. Look around. (laughs) We're already there. I hate to sound like the old get-off-my-lawn guy, But every day I see people living their lives and embracing patterns that would cause me to be so embarrassed and experience so much shame that I just shake my head and say, to each his own, but I could never live like that. So why do I think shame is a good thing? Well, one of my favorite books, I know I say that a lot, but this one's easily in my top 10, is the book Written on the Heart, The Things We Can't Not Know by Jay Bujashevsky. To give you a little background on him, He's a professor of ethics in the government division at University of Texas in Austin. He's a former Baptist who became an atheist and then a Catholic. As such, he answers many questions of ethics as they relate to the Christian sphere, but in his professional capacity, he discusses ethics in government. Considering what an oxymoron that seems to be in our current situation, his topics and discussions are certainly timely. One particular topic that I first read as an essay, but it was later incorporated into a chapter in one of his books, was simply titled, the revenge of conscience. In this essay, he makes the point that we are all born with a conscience that dictates our concept of what is right and what is wrong. From that point forward, we have the option of silencing our conscience to the point that we may no longer be aware of its existence at all. And yet it does still exist. And our lack of awareness of its existence does not save us from suffering the consequences of violating it. For this reason, it's very much in our best interest to become hypersensitive to our conscience, and not numb to it. Unfortunately, most people prefer numb, and they go to great lengths to try to create that numbness. One of the ways that our conscience is awakened and sensitive is by the experience of shame. Think of the last thing you did that caused you to feel shame. If that's too hard, think about the last time you were embarrassed about something. That'll be close enough. No doubt you said to yourself, well, I'm never going to do that again. 
See how easily shame changes behavior? What I'm sure you did not say to yourself was, I can't wait to do that again. I've probably belabored this point, but the idea is that shame causes people to change behavior to the point that if shame doesn't work, then nothing else will. I'm afraid in this day and age, people have become so arrogant in their ignorance that you will find many who cannot be moved, even with shame. The Bible gives the admonishment, actually it was Jesus himself who said it, not to throw pearls before swine. This is something I repeat to myself on almost a daily basis. A pig has no use for a pearl, and it has no concept of the value of a pearl. Many people are the same way when it comes to sharing the truth with them. If they have no use for it, and they can't see the value in it, then I'm not going to waste my time sharing the truth with them. So that's the first category, people who aren't worth wasting time on. It seems mean to say it that way, but that really is the harsh truth of reality. Some people simply aren't worth your time. You just need to know the value of your time to know who they are. These people are the reason why I almost never engage on social media. People don't go on social media to learn something. They go on there to share their opinion with everyone else. No thanks. I have productive things to do with my time. I don't need to engage with that. So let's get back to the shame topic and I'll tell you how I use that. The first group I use this on are lay people, especially the ones who are over-opinionated and under-informed. The other day I was watching a video. There was one guy on the right and one guy on the left. The guy on the right was complaining that the government was not acknowledging that natural immunity to COVID was more effective than vaccine-induced immunity. To this, the guy on the left said, well, I would need to see those studies to be convinced that is really true. I thought, wait a minute, hold your horses. First of all, it is extremely arrogant and condescending for him to say he would need to see the studies when I'd be willing to bet that he wouldn't understand what, he, what the study says if he read it. And if he could read it, then why hasn't he? It isn't like this is secret information. But the guy on the right was also talking above his knowledge base. Sure, he's quoting a study to sound intelligent, but he really has no idea what he's talking about. It then hit me that conversations like this are counterproductive, and they're actually the cause of all the animosity between different groups. So I've now taken the position that lay people are not qualified to discuss this topic. I don't care if they are pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, both groups need to stop, because they're discussing something that's way beyond their pay grade. On one hand, a patient says, I just think everyone should get vaccinated because vaccines have been around for years and they've eradicated numerous diseases. Or a patient says, I don't think anyone should get vaccinated ever because vaccines have no value and they're simply an attempt to exploit our collective ignorance. Now, both of those statements are less than 100% accurate, although one of them is closer to the truth than the other. But for both of these patients, I need to correct some of their factual inaccuracies. The problem is that there's little chance I will successfully move either of these people from their extreme dogmatic position. What I can do is to shame them with their own ignorance. I can guarantee you that neither of these two people is truly educated on vaccines, but they're even less educated on physiology and immunology. The trick is, I'm not going to just call them ignorant to their face. That accomplishes nothing. I need for them to discover for themselves how ignorant they are. This means I need to be educated myself, and that's why I encourage all doctors to remain current on their literature, but we'll get to them later. The method for exposing their ignorance in a kind manner is to simply ask questions. For example, it's amazing that vaccines are able to create such immunity by raising antibody levels. But how do you suppose that they do that when antibodies live outside the cell and viruses live inside the cell? A simple question like that can get someone thinking for the first time and break them out of the habit of simply spouting rhetoric. I've used that question before, and they usually respond by simply saying, 
Is that really true? Yes, it is true. The body uses an entirely different immune cell to fight viruses inside the cell. The problem is that when antibodies outside the cell go up, the immune cell that you need inside the cell goes down. Wouldn't it make more sense to have balance rather than elevate one to the detriment of the other? I then tell them, I'm willing to bet you don't know the name of that other cell because it isn't in the industry's best interest for you to fully understand how your immune system works. They're called killer T cells, by the way, and they come from your thymus gland. I also bet you don't even know where your thymus is located. I then let them off the hook by telling them that nobody actually expects them to know any of this information because it's all very complicated. But when it's massively oversimplified, it can be used quite easily to manipulate people both in their actions and their emotions. You're welcome to have an opinion, but you're walking on dangerous ground to suggest that you know what is best for someone else when you don't even know the basics of how your body works, much less theirs. I admit it seems a little cruel, but I think it's real cruelty is to demand that people behave the way you think they should without any regard for their unique circumstances and physiology. I can't claim that I've changed very many people's minds. I honestly don't know. But I do know that I've convinced a number of people to keep their opinions to themselves because an uneducated opinion is worth what it costs. Nothing. The other group of people are the educated, like the doctor in the original question. In this case, I still use shame, but it's the shame of not staying current and knowledgeable which in my opinion is dereliction of duty for any doctor. I don't do it often and I try not to be cruel about it, but it is fun to question a pediatrician to see how much they really know about the vaccines they give. I'll ask them, so how much do you really know about the vaccines you give? Did you learn it all in medical school or do you have to go to seminars to remain current with all the new vaccines coming out all the time? They'll almost always declare themselves to be fully knowledgeable about vaccines. So here's the setup. What do you think about the use of ethyl mercury instead of methyl mercury? They might admit they have no idea what I'm talking about, but they will most likely repeat the rhetoric promoted by Paul Offit that ethyl mercury is much safer than methyl mercury because it only remains in the blood for a fraction of the time. Great. So then you are no doubt familiar with the Burbacker study. They almost never are. You may not be familiar with it either, so allow me to enlighten you. You will find publications meant for the general public that state that thimerosal is safer than methylmercury because it only remains in the blood for a fraction of the time. I just found one today that stated this exact assumption. The assumption was that it was eliminated in the urine and therefore did very little harm to the recipient. Burbacker was not so easily convinced. He did a study on monkeys comparing methylmercury to ethylmercury, the ingredient in thimerosal. He used radioactive tracers so he could see where the mercury went, how it got there, and how long it took to get there. He found that 70% of the ethylmercury, as opposed to only 10% of the methylmercury, found its way to the brain where it began to elicit neurotoxic effects on the organism. His study was so well conducted that it was considered definitive, although it has been repeated numerous times with the same results every time. This is important because it immediately proves that someone is either current on the research, meaning they know that ethylmercury is much more toxic than methylmercury, or they're simply repeating the rhetoric that ethylmercury is safer because it doesn't stay in the blood and they're calling it science. Once again, I'm shaming them into the reality that when they say they know the science, they are lying, both to their patients and, more importantly, to themselves. By the way, I have a copy of the Burbacker study that I keep in my iBooks because you never know when you might need to prove to someone that they have no idea what they're talking about. So let's go back to the doctor in the original question, the attending. I would have simply asked him, do you not think it's our responsibility to know the literature and communicate it with our patients? 
or is science just too complicated for us chiropractors to understand? Because his statement makes it sound like he thinks this is a topic that should be left to the professionals, and we should just sit quietly in the corner. Truthfully, I think this doctor is just a coward. He's trying to shame you into being a coward like him, so he won't stand out for being a coward. People do that all the time. Once you know they are a coward, there's no reason to expect them to be anything but a coward. So basically, when necessary, I use shame to shame people into keeping their uneducated opinion to themselves by exposing how uneducated it truly is. I won't lie, there are times, too many times, when people say things that are so profoundly ignorant that I don't even know where to start. If I don't know where to start, then I don't start. I found that an incomplete explanation or rebuttal is usually more of a problem than no explanation or rebuttal at all. This is the inherent problem because it leads into the trap of oversimplification. An oversimplified answer is generally an incomplete answer. That's why I generally don't engage on social media. While I hope that helps to answer that question, I certainly don't think I have the right answer or the only answer, but that's just what I do when the situation calls for it. Think of something that you're really good at. Let's say that you're so good that you're in the top 5% of all human beings. Now let's imagine you know someone who's in the bottom 5% for that same thing, or God forbid, you're married to them. Because of their extreme ignorance and inability, they will always perceive your strength as a weakness. We as humans are never aware of what we are truly awful at. Think about it. Is there something that you're so bad at that you're in the bottom 5% of all humans? <laughs> of course not. When someone is that bad, their brain has to come up with an explanation for how they are actually good. When they encounter a person who is genuinely good at that thing, they tend to develop a great animosity toward that person, and they'll try to convince them that they should be more like them, and they should change how they're doing things. If you're really good at something, no doubt you've encountered people who have tried to tell you how to do it better, even though they have no concept of how to do what you can do in the first place. There's only one antidote to this situation, and that is for the person who is truly awful to have humility. Unfortunately, it seems humility is at an all-time low especially among the uneducated and misinformed. So shaming them is the only opportunity to introduce them to reality. As a side note, have you ever noticed that this is the crux of Gordon Ramsay's approach on kitchen nightmares? You usually have a cocky chef who's serving up garbage for food. Gordon Ramsay will tell you that it's impossible to turn that situation around unless you can shame that person back to reality. Once reality sets in and humbles them, then you have a chance to create something great. I'm just using that same approach for all the armchair scientists who got their education from CNN. Now, if you'll indulge me, I want to shift gears a bit, but it's still relevant, I promise. Robert Barnes is an attorney out of Las Vegas. This summer, he sued both the Fed and the FDA. He made a point that I had never really considered, but I probably needed a lawyer to explain it to me in the first place. He calls the period between roughly 1905 and 1940 the eugenics period of the Supreme Court. Most people fail to realize that eugenics began in the United States with people like Margaret Sanger before Hitler adopted it in Germany. Hopefully everyone's familiar with the term eugenics, but just in case, let's define what it is. Eugenics is a system of selective breeding for humans based on qualities that are deemed superior or inferior. This system is a logical conclusion of evolutionary thought and is inherently racist because of it. Whether it's Hitler's preference for blonde hair and blue eyes or the Chinese preference for male over female. One group will be elevated, while another is thrown away like garbage. Eugenics is inherently dehumanizing, and that's why it's usually rejected by civilized societies. To demonstrate this, we can see that Germany was universally regarded as the leader in medical innovation, and all the best medical scientists came from Germany, until Hitler put an end to all that way of thinking 
and he forced eugenics as the medicine of the future. That put an end to Germany's dominance, and France became the new leader in medical thought. You may also not know that when the Nazis were asked what gave them the right to conduct medical experiments on unwilling participants, their response was to quote the United States Supreme Court. It was during this eugenics period of the Supreme Court that many bad laws were introduced to further their agenda, including the Jacobson case that you often hear about. If you're unfamiliar, if you're unfamiliar with this case, there was a man named Jacobson. During the time that smallpox was killing one out of every three people who got it, the municipality passed a law that you had to be vaccinated against smallpox or pay a fine, which was equal to a $100 fine in today's money. Jacobson said, no thanks, and he eagerly paid the fine to avoid the vaccine. This case was pushed up to the Supreme Court, who ruled that he had to take the vaccine against his will, even though he had already paid the fine. You see why politicians are so eager to cite this case, and they will tell you that it's still good law, when in fact, it was never good law, but it was born from the eugenics phase of the Supreme Court. When these eugenics laws were played out to their logical conclusion by Hitler and the Nazi regime, the world was so horrified by what they saw that they instituted the Nuremberg Code, guaranteeing every citizen of the world that they would never be subjected to medical treatment or experimentation without their informed consent. Clearly, you can see that today, all over the world, the Nuremberg Code is being violated. Because the biggest problem with a law like this is that the law is only as strong as those who are set up to enforce it. But we have nobody who is enforcing the Nuremberg Code, which means it effectively does not exist. This is made more evident by Robert Barnes' suggestion that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently entering a second eugenics phase. I can tell you from their voting that Justices Thomas and Alito are not part of this eugenics phase, but the rest are either willing or ignorant participants in it. It's kind of a funny fact, but all three justices nominated by Donald Trump are Catholic. They are all now voting along the lines of the eugenicists. I'm not really sure what to make of that, but it's a fact nonetheless. The other day, I gave my mom my short dissertation on why I think Amy Coney Barrett is the worst Supreme Court justice of all times. I admit I'm probably a bit premature in that conclusion, so I'll give it time and I hope she proves me wrong, but she definitely is not off to a strong start. To further highlight the importance of this resurgence of eugenics, I'm putting together an episode to talk about how eugenics is the logical conclusion of evolution and chiropractic is the antidote when we stick to our anti-evolution roots. But that's a topic for another day. My point right now is simply to make you aware that the eugenics movement of Nazi Germany is making a comeback, and this time it's doing it in the country of its birth, the good old US of A. We need to be aware of it because when we see it, it needs to be called out as eugenics and those who support it need to be labeled as the eugenicists that they are. The politicians know that the population group most resistant to getting the COVID vaccine is African Americans. They're not okay with that, and it's highly influential for creating such draconian mandates. But now you know the real reason why is because of eugenics. What do you do if you're trying to exterminate a certain population group, but that population group is the healthiest one because they refuse to do anything you say? It's just a hypothetical question. I'm not insinuating anything. I think that as chiropractors, we need to be aware that eugenics is making a comeback, and we need to be ready to stand in strong opposition to it. The world said no with the Nuremberg Code, but then the politicians were not okay with that for very long. They said, well, maybe we could just take some of your freedoms for our benefit. And now they're saying, we will take all of your freedoms for our benefit. When the government takes away your freedom, it's never because they have something wonderfully amazing in mind. No, it's because they see your life as worthless and generally an inconvenience for them. And this is why eugenics is so popular among politicians. 
especially the among those of the more corrupt persuasions. When you understand that this resurgence of eugenics movement is happening in the background and the rewriting of science is in full effect, much like the rewriting of history, that it's simply intolerable for people to be oversimplifying the problem and shouting in absolutes. I don't know how good of a job I've done at answering the original question, but I hope I've given you something to think about, and maybe we can begin to address the culture with the chiropractic philosophy so they can understand that their body is more powerful and capable than any virus. I heard a quote today from G. Campbell Morgan who said, The reason men do not look to the church today is that she has destroyed her own influence by compromise. Can I dare say to you that the reason why men do not look to chiropractic is because she has destroyed her own influence with compromise? I want to leave you with that thought. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank you.